Hey everyone, back again. Today I want to talk about the idea of queer temporalities through the work of Jack Halberstam because I'm going to be covering his book in a queer time and place in a couple of weeks, so this might be just a good way to start that out. But before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I explain philosophical concepts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, you can see my more than 300 episodes I already have up covering texts and ideas so that if you don't have the time, hopefully you can be exposed to this stuff without having to go and read hundreds and hundreds of pages of stuff. If you want to help me out, if you like what I do, like, share, subscribe, you can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it just as a podcast on any podcast platform under all the same names. If you found this as a podcast, you're going to be able to find the video for this episode. Sometimes there are videos, sometimes not. Uh, you'll be able to find that on YouTube if you're into that. You can follow me and other places like Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo or on TikTok at theory philosophy. Uh, and yeah, let's jump into queer temporalities through Jack Halberstam's In a Queer Time and Place because there are so many people who talk about this. Queer temporalities provide different perspectives on it. How to think about queer temporalities. Is there actually a way to think about queer temporalities without committing a violence to it? What I mean by that is as we will see, embedded within the term itself is an implication of a deviation from a norm. And if we suddenly start applying definitions to it and parameters, then we are starting to apply a norm to it, which defeats the purpose and just brings it into the fold of everyday normative life from a hegemonic and dominant standpoint. So there's all of these other perspectives, but today we're only going to look at it through Halberstam's perspective in a queer time and place. Now, in order to understand queer temporality, it's important also to mention that this resonates with and connects to queer spatiality, which is less of a term of consideration. Actually, I don't think it arises at all, but there is a consideration within Halberstam's text about space and certain spaces that deviate from the norm. So we will talk about that just kind of briefly because the two are intertwined. You can't completely disconnect the two. So when we're gonna talk about queer time and space or queer temporality, we have to understand normative time and normative space, those ways of existing in the world that comply with the dominant script. So for Halberstam, it kind of goes as follows. The normative script, the time script, the life script of someone's life within North American or European culture at least this is the script that's represented to us in most popular culture that people are going to be fed through so many different media goes as follows. You are a child and there are certain connotations implied with that, innocence, uh, silly, uneducated, uh, wondering so many things that go on in childhood before entering into adolescence, which is assumed to be a site of creativity, of deviance in some cases so many other things. Then from there, you move into adulthood where you you know, get the job, get the house, get the 2.3 kids, get the white picket fence, and then you know, pray one day for eventually entering into retirement where you will live out the rest of your days, likely doing whatever you'd like to do for the last few years of your life. Now that is the normative script, which is we have to acknowledge that so many people don't abide by it that it's hard to even call it normative. Like it has become very much a dream for so many people, this 
thing called the middle class has been shrinking so much that would have really comprised this script or been a part of this script. But that's changing now. This book is 20 years old, but in any case, this is the normative idea of one's life script, of one's time, of temporality. Now, queer temporality and queer spatiality deviates from this norm for, for many different reasons. Probably the biggest one is the fact that queer people, which includes gay, non-binary, trans people, uh, who do not comply with the standard heteropatriarchal monogamous script of everyday life, these people have been historically excluded from so many different places, so many different life events, been denied the opportunity for marriage, which is often a very much a defining factor when it comes to one's life script, been denied being able to adopt children for a very long time, still very much to this day, being denied an accepting childhood, like in the case of very many trans children who are, not, are, who are denied the opportunity to exist the way that they want to exist, effectively taking away the possibility of having a childhood for them. So there is no possibility, or it's much more difficult, to actually abide by and exist within a normative script, which demanded that people make their own scripts, demanded that people make their own life paths, which in some cases can certainly be quite fulfilling. In other cases, it can just be a mode of survival. It's just about trying to get through the day, trying to get through one's life, while navigating all of these different oppressions that are being thrown at them and that they exist in, every single day. Now beyond what I think is a little bit more of a nebulous description of oppression, which is very real, it's very tangible, but in terms of another significant event that affected very many queer people was the AIDS epidemic in the United States and Canada, in which there were just like, so many gay people died from AIDS that it really threw a wrench in this idea of a linear time script where people live their lives thinking about the future. You know, you're in adolescence, you're thinking about adulthood. In adulthood, you're thinking about retirement. And then in retirement, you're thinking about an eventual death in old age. For many queer people, that was taken away because of this looming specter, this threat of AIDS. So Halberstam suggests that queer people at this time were kind of forced to live in, a, in an eternal present. They were not focused on the future because that future was not guaranteed in the way that it was ostensibly guaranteed to people who would follow the normative life script, like straight, uh, heteromonogamous people who didn't have the same threat in front of them in terms of AIDS. Of course, it still affects straight people, but not to the same extent. The point here being that this reframed queer people's relationships to themselves, to the world, and to time. So this forced, all of these different things forced people to take on different ideas about how their lives could unfold, what they were supposed to do in their lives, what the benchmarks were in their lives, what spaces could they occupy where gay people weren't expected or allowed into certain spaces where they could then exercise and engage in ways that made sense to them. For example, anyone familiar with the film Burning in Paris would know about drag culture in New York being one that was relegated to certain bars that were less popular than to like straight heteronormative crowds and that would extend beyond certain permitted uh, opening hours, 
for people who <laughs> experienced so much uh, oppression in their lives. So they had to navigate new kinds of spaces, open up new possible subcultures within their lives, their cities, that would allow them to express themselves and live the way they want because they couldn't do it in the normative, dominant, hegemonic framework. Now, as I'm saying this, there's a problem here. And the problem is that, and Jack Halberstam is very clear about this, the problem is that when we think about queer culture, historically there's been a tendency to associate that queer culture with gay male white youths in cities. They have been the most represented of the broad spectrum of queer culture and queer identities. And this has come at the expense of lesbian, trans, non-binary, two-spirit people, and especially all of these people who are not white. So all of these people of color who have been further excluded, not only from the normative script of life that the dominant order imposes, but they've also been excluded when academics, when other people uh, within their communities have excluded black and indigenous people from even these subcultures, forcing like sub-subcultures to emerge for these people to then exist in ways that make sense to them. So it's important that even when thinking about this, that we are prepared to disentangle, to decouple our understanding of queer culture and queer subcultures from queer white youth, uh, largely gay white men in cities, which Halberstam attributes the term metronormativity, metronormativity being a focus on cities. So within uh, the book, In a Queer Place and Time, he pays a lot of attention to the case of Brandon Tina, who's a trans man who was murdered in Nebraska. And in it, he demonstrates that all of the press around this, tr or most of it, tried to make sense of the fact of Brandon wanting to live in a rural place. So even like queer thinkers at the time were like, well, to some extent, it's like almost Brandon's fault. Like, of course, what was he expecting? Living in the country, like, of course, where all those uh, unthinking, unaccepting people are. So Hopperstam instead suggests that no, I mean, rural communities, there, there are many queer communities within these rural settings, and they've just been erased in favor of a metronormative agenda that focuses on urban living queer youth, mostly. And by ignoring the many reasons that queer people would want to live in rural settings, maybe because they have their own queer communities there, and continually erasing those communities, what that does is it actually continues legacies of exclusion that even queer white gay youth in cities have tried to get away from. So the important part of this is to not replicate the same kinds of oppression that erase and exclude some queer communities from others. So there is no queer temporality. There is no queer space. There are temporalities and there are spatialities. There are so many different variations. And like I said at the outset, it's important that we don't just homogenize them. It's important that we don't just ascribe to them a single definition because that is to inflict a harm on these communities to kind of solidify them and concretize them. Now, as an example of a film that breaks away from this and actually lends a voice to and presents, represents queer culture, queer spaces, queer subcultures, queer time, is a film called By Hook or By Crook that uh, 
Halberstam spends a lot of time engaging with. And if you want more on this, like I said, I'm going to start covering in a queer time and place in a couple of weeks. So subscribe so you can see when that when that comes out. But within it, we see the main characters played by Harry Dodge and Silas Howard. We see them navigating spaces that you wouldn't normally see on the big screen. That is, they occupy spaces within urban settings that aren't you know, common touristy type spots or landmarks that uh, are attached to legacies of oppression. Instead, it's occupying all of these different subcultural underground spaces that might otherwise go unseen in these types of media, like on the big screen. Now, the last key point that I wanna raise that Halberstam gives us is a rethinking of the way that creativity is framed within the normative life script. Halberstam suggests that historically, creativity is associated with adolescence. Now within queer communities, we see that change a bit, where creativity actually extends well through adulthood. And this is largely motivated by the fact that these people experience so much oppression uh, in their lives that they can't just like separate themselves from their communities. I mean, they're wholly attached to those communities and they feel an obligation to uphold those communities, to continually contribute to the cultural lifeblood of those communities well beyond adolescence. So these people haven't just like fallen into a robotic script, like of going to work and just existing in that type of uh, setting and at the end of the day retreating into the suburbs, into one's home and, and not having friends or community. These people have instead embraced a different way of living that is still very much attached to their cultural identity, one that is very important to them. And of course, it is in a lot of ways, it has been a way for them to keep surviving, to keep living in a world that wants to exclude them and repeatedly excludes them. Which isn't to say that there isn't a thing called homonormativity, which is where uh, there are like people who would belong to the queer community who do not actually engage so much with that community, instead choose to embrace fully the normative life script. And if that makes sense to them, that's totally fine. But if it comes at the expense of their queer community or an active hostility to that community, then that, that's obviously an issue. That's not great. And yeah, I hope that that has been a fair introduction to this term. Like I said, I mean, this is only scratching the surface here. If there's anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Tell me what you think. Do you buy it? Is it too narrow? What can we do with this term? Let me know. Yeah. On that note, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, and I'll catch you next time. Take care.